This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. We are about two weeks away from playoff baseball, and while you can reasonably guess that teams like the Blue Jays and Dodgers and Mets will be there, the only team we know for certain right now is the Cardinals, who have clinched their playoff berth for approximately the 86th year in a row. Pretty sure the last time they weren't in the playoffs, their second baseman was Mike Tyson. That's a real thing. I did not make that up. Here to tell us a little bit about why the Cardinals have been so fascinating and successful, MLB.com Cardinals beat writer Jennifer Langosh. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. My first question for you is immediately about Yadier Merlina. How badly injured is that left thumb, and are we going to see him in October? Yeah, you know, it's funny that, that the Cardinals are actually have described this as good news, which tells you how fearful they were of a diagnosis that would have been much worse. You, know, you remember last year he had the same, a similar thumb injury, but much more severe cost him seven weeks while he recovered from surgery. This one, not so significant. So it is a slight ligament tear. Um, he is going to be reevaluated in about five days, at which time the Cardinals will determine if he's going to be able to play again and when, if he is. Um, you know, you're looking at the possibility of him maybe returning before the end of the regular season. He believes he will be back um, before the end of the regular season. But really, the Cardinals' goal right now is to get him back for October 9th, assuming that they can bypass that wild card game. You get him two and a half weeks of rest, he can come back and be ready to go for the postseason. So, again, everybody here is calling it good news. So, you know, for Cardinal fans, I think you can breathe a little bit of high relief, but we'll find out in a couple of days exactly what that time frame will be. Now, when he got injured, there uh, kind of started a lot of talk about how valuable, quote-unquote, he is. Uh, and I don't think anybody disagrees that he's extremely valuable as far as managing the pitching staff. Uh, but at the plate, he's kind of been on a decline. Four straight years, his slugging percentage is down. Uh, two years ago, he was 33% above average. Now he's 20% below average. Uh, you know, do you think that despite that, the team can, can win without him? It's tough. I, I mean, it's so hard to, to calculate and put a figure on Yachty's, you know, value to this team. I mean, yes, as you mentioned, offensively, he has not had a good couple of years. You know, especially you look at recently in September, had a terrible September. He didn't have a very good August for the team when the team has really needed some offensive help. Um, has that bat has not been there in September. He just has a way, though, behind the plate to navigate these pitchers, especially the young pitchers. When you talk about a Carlos Martinez in particular, Yachty has a way with, with these guys. And, you know, you look at the numbers with him and Cruz, Cruz 10 and 10, the Cardinals are in his start. You know, with Yachty, they're 85 and 47. And ERA with Yachty behind the plate, just under three, about, you know, about 287. Um, with Cruz, it's almost three and a half. So there is a difference with him there. You know, that being said, the Cardinals also, Cardinal pitchers do like throwing to Tony Cruz. I mean, Tony Cruz has basically for the last four years had an apprenticeship of following Yachty Molina around and learning everything he can. And to Tony's credit, he has soaked up a lot. That being said, again, there's just a way that Yachty works behind the plate, a confidence the pitchers have in him and his game calling and his ability to block pitches, his um, controlling of the running game that I think we can't quantitatively put into numbers. And the Cardinals will take him, Cardinals will take him behind the plate without the bat, that's for sure. 
Now, it does seem like injuries are the story for the Cardinals offense right now. You know, Matt Adams recently came back. Uh, Matt Holliday, I believe, is starting tonight for the first time since July. And in the outfield, Randall Gritchuk kind of playing with one arm these days. Uh, but he's been an interesting story because he's kind of one of the, the first, like, stat cast stars we've had. You know, he really wasn't a heralded prospect. Uh, he, he didn't do much in a short stint last year. But as soon as he came up this year, we started noticing he was really at the top or close to the top of the average exit velocity charts. Uh, and even right now, he's at 94.7 miles an hour, behind, top five, only behind Stanton, Snow, Miggy Cabrera, and Kyle Schwarber. When did you start noticing, uh, you know, as far as Randall Gritchick goes, just like how hard the bat comes off, the ball comes off his bat? You know, it was pretty easy to see with him early. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, he didn't have the numbers last year, but he had his moments. And it was interesting talking a few weeks ago to General Manager John Mozalak about this exit velocity topic. And he smiled and he said it was one of the things that the Cardinals had their eye on long before they traded for Gritchick in November 2013, that they, you know, through their minor league numbers and their scouting, saw that he had a different type of kind of power to be generated off the bat. So this is, you know, the type of velocity that we talk about now. It's something that the Cardinals, again, noticed in Randall many years ago. It led to them wanting to trade for him. He has the type of scary power that he can have an accident-type swing and still hit at 450 feet. And I think that's why, I know that's why we're still seeing him being put in the outfield, even though he can't throw. Um, you know, we saw him come back in the outfield when he had to throw an underhanded pass to another outfielder to get the ball back into the infield. And that's how gimpy his arm was. It is getting better. We are going to see him in the outfield um, here Wednesday night. So, he, you know, he is getting that arm strength back, back. But his bat is a game changer. And, again, we're talking about a Cardinals team that this year has been carried by its pitching. And it is just salivating for somebody to step up and kind of be a big bat in this lineup. And the Cardinals do believe that Randall Grisha can be that guy. Well, see, I like that because we're always looking for, for, you know, evidence that teams are using this data. And we point to, you know, column Q spin rate, uh, the Mets picking Duda over Davis because of exit velocity. And it really seems like the Cardinals kind of had an eye on that when they looked at Grichuk. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned the outfield. And as I look at their depth chart right now, they really have eight outfielders, right? Jason Hayward's obviously going to start. But Grichuk, Tommy Pham's been really good. Holiday's back. Biscotti, Jay, Moss, Peter Burchus. How are they going to make all this work in October? That's a great question. Um, it is a very crowded outfield, and it's gotten even more complicated with the emergence of Tommy Pham. I mean, he was a guy... He had a great spring until he got hurt, and, and then he disappeared while he was recovering from a quad injury. And I don't think anybody anticipated I, – I, th- I didn't think he'd be up this year, number one, but I don't think anybody anticipated that if he was up, he would be making this part of an impact. You look at his last 30 at-bats, nine extra base hits for this team, and again, team star for offense is going to keep charting anybody who can get a hit at this point. So you have him in the mix. I think what that does is it bumps John Jay and Peter Borges out. I'm not sure that uh, – certainly on Peter's case, you know, and John Jay maybe as well. I'm not sure either make – the postseason roster at this point. Um, you know, the nice thing with some of the other guys that you mentioned, both, you know, Stephen Piscotti, Brandon Moss, and Mark Reynolds, is they have some defensive flexibility, so there's first base as an option for those three. But if Matt Holiday is back and healthy, he's going to be playing every day. If Jason Hayward remains healthy, he's going to be playing every day. So that essentially leaves one outfield spot for the likes of a Tommy Pham, a Stephen Piscotti, and a Randall Grichik. Um, complicated decisions, but certainly the one, you know ones that the Cardinals are okay with. More options at this time of year is a good thing, and if anything, it is going to strengthen their bench. Yeah, file that under a good problem to have. Uh, and speaking of Hayward, I mean, we have to talk about Jason Hayward because he's just incredible. He leads the Cardinals in stolen base, uh, in base running value, defensive runs saved. He's got 17% above average just as far as hitting goes. He touched almost 96 miles an hour on that throw against the Cubs the other night where Yadi Molina got hurt, and there's how many pitchers can't hit 96 miles an hour. So I, I'm interested to know, well, I guess, two things. Looking back on that trade, you know, 10 years of pitching prospects in Miller and Jenkins for one year of Hayward. How does it look now? And do you think there's any chance he sticks with the Cardinals after this season? 
Yeah, I mean, it looks really good now. And, you know, the Cardinals knew that that trade was going to be one that they hoped to benefit them in the short term, whereas they were giving away kind of long-term assets. As you mentioned, the years of control was a big deal. Um, but Jason Hayward is a guy, you know, when you watch him periodically, as I did the last couple of years, certainly not covering the Braves and seeing him play every day, you always saw the war stand out, and he was always very high in that. And you kind of wondered, you know, you, uh, why? Why does he fit in that top echelon of players? But watching him play, he just does everything really, really well. I mean, the defense is there. The base running is there. Um, after a slow April and May for him, he's been one of the better offensive players on this team. So, again, when you look at a Cardinals team that has struggled offensively, if you don't have Jason Hayward in there, I'm not sure where this team is right now. You know, on the topic of whether or not he signs here, it's one of the reasons why the Cardinals were aggressive in bringing him in when they did. They hoped that having Jason Hayward play here for a year would kind of sell him on the organization, the city, the history. I'll tell you, Jason Hayward has enjoyed every minute of playing here. He felt like he fit right in in spring training. He's loving being part uh, of a pennant race, and certainly if this team goes deep into October, he's going to favor that. So the Cardinals have won some points there. That being said, the season that he is putting up is also going to get a lot of other suitors involved. And the question for the Cardinals is, how high are they going to be willing to go? This is a guy who's also an interesting case because he's going to hit free agency at the age of 26. So you're going to get um, the best years of his career, theoretically. Um, that's going to push the price tag up. So Cardinals are going to be aggressive in going after him. They're going to be aggressive but smart. Uh, they're not going to overpay, so you know, that could come into play. But they would like this to be more than a one-year thing. Now, on the topic of the offense, uh, you know, Matt Carpenter's obviously been one of the best hitters for the Cardinals for the last few years, but we're seeing a very different Matt Carpenter this year. And you look at his strikeout percentage, it's up from 15% over 22%, which on the surface seems bad, but he's also got 24 of his 49 career home runs this year alone. Uh, he's basically selling out some patience to get to more power, but it, it kind of seems like different paths to get to the same place because overall, if you look at weighted runs created, he's essentially at the exact same spot this year he's been for, for his career. So uh, do you look, I assume this is kind of a, a conscious decision on his part, and you know, I don't know if he cares at all about weighted runs created, but do you think he sees this as a better version of himself? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, last year we saw him show kind of the signs of power in the postseason, and it was kind of an epiphany for him that he believed that maybe he could be a different player than he had been. Uh, came into this year wanting to showcase the power a little bit more. Now, you could also make the argument, you know, a couple of years ago, this is a guy who had 55 doubles, so you can make the argument that he was showing his power. It was just manifest a little bit differently than we've seen it this year. So, yes, it was a conscious effort. You know, I do think that the type of player that we've seen Matt Carpenter be this year might fit better somewhere else in the lineup. The Cardinals, however, have needed him as a leadoff hitter um, and perhaps again the style that we're seeing right now isn't ideal for that spot as it maybe in the future he might move down I asked him recently about the strikeouts I mean, he's basically striking out as often as he gets a hit which is very surprising for a guy with such good play discipline it's one of the biggest things you know that people raved about with him coming up you know and his response to that was that he feels he can go up there anytime he wants and hit the first or second pitch of the at bat but he feels it benefits him to continue to work those counts get to two strikes and if it costs him the strikeout, so be it. Because on the flip side, he feels like he'll be able to get more return out of that in the long run. So very different. It will be interesting to see how he continues to evolve, if he, if he likes kind of how things have gone this year, or if maybe he wants to go back to being the guy who draws a lot of walks and gets on base um, down the road. But certainly, I mean, here's a guy who's leading the team in home runs. Um, he, has, he really has transformed himself this year. Now, the Cardinals are only 25th in runs scored, but they are close to record-setting on the pitching side with run prevention. They've got a, a 75 ERA minus, which is ever so slightly out of the best all-time over the last 100 seasons. Uh, obviously, the rotation has been incredible, even without Adam Wainwright. 
And a big part of that has been Carlos Martinez, who barely made the fifth spot uh, out of camp this year. And he's really kind of ascended to being an ace. And uh, and I think it's really interesting because you don't usually see pitchers increase their velocity in season unless they move from the the rotation of the bullpen. And he's stuck in the rotation, and he's jumped from uh, 95 miles an hour on the fastball in April uh, now up to 97.8, which is uh, uh, the second highest fastball velocity among starters in the second half. Uh, now, if I look at him, I say he might be the best guy for the postseason. I noticed you wrote last night that you think maybe John Lackey is the best option for game one. How do you pick and choose, or, or maybe is the answer there is no wrong answer? Yeah, I don't think there is. Again, let's put this under the category of great problems the Cardinals have. Um, you know, Carlos Martinez, has been, it's been fascinating to watch him. You know, you mentioned the fastball velocity. When he started this year, the Cardinals wanted to be really conscious of really honing in that velocity um, and maybe improving his command as a result. They, they thought that, you know, when he overthrew and got a little excitable, tried to, to reach 99 and 100, that that would cost him. So, you know, I think what we saw earlier this year was him really learning how to be a pitcher and not just the thrower, which could be out of the bullpen at times. Now, as he's become more comfortable with everything else, with his off-speed pitches there to complement it, we have seen that fastball velocity continue to tick up. You, know, you look at his start against the Cubs over the weekend, a very emotional start in an emotionally charged series. We saw a consistent 97, 98, at times 99 from him deep into the start. Um, he, again, here's a guy, you know, and there's so much talk across the league about innings for starters. Um, he is a guy that's in uncharted waters in terms of where his innings are compared to what he's ever thrown before. And we don't see any sort of dip in effectiveness. So it's been a sensational year for Carlos Martinez. One of the better stories, I think, too, when you consider all that he went through in losing his best friend um, and entering the season wanting to honor Oscar Tavares with his performance on the mound. He'll be a part of that postseason rotation, I believe, if he finishes strong. The problem for the Cardinals, though, is you have five guys that you can make an argument deserve to be in there, and at some point one is going to be left out. And, you know, I guess you could also consider Carlos a weapon in the bullpen. So we'll be interested to see how it plays out. But, man, he's had a great finish here. It really is incredible. You can look at five guys who all have a case to be in the rotation, uh, and none of those five are Adam Wainwright, who – when he bled his Achilles in April, the reports are expected to be out 9 to 12 months. And here he is in September, uh, and he actually threw pitches to live hitters today for the first time. So I don't know if you were able to get a chance to see that in person or not, but it sounds like this is going to happen. He's actually going to make it back this season, isn't he? He is. You know, he's been shouting from the rooftops for a couple months now that he was going to be back this year, and I don't think any of us really believed it. I mean, it was only a month ago that General Manager John Mosellock said it would be a miracle rehab if we saw Adam Wainwright pitch again this year. So here we are. You mentioned, you know, it was a 9- to 12-month recovery estimation. Here we are. We're not even five months from his surgery date, um, and he is about to come back. He threw about 25 pitches today. It was interesting. Not only was all the media out there to watch, every single one of his teammates and Cardinal staff members was out on the field, many of them just sitting in the outfield watching him throw. You can, that, that speaks to how much he means to this team and how amazed everybody is at the job that he has done and the work that he's put in to come back. So the plan here is for him to throw another sim game this weekend. He still needs to pass some tests on the mobility agility side. He'll be able to break off the mound cover first to defend his position well. But if all goes well over the next few days, I think we're going to see him pitching out of the bullpen next week, perhaps more than once. Cardinals would like to see what they have in him before they have to build a postseason roster. But right now, all signs point to Adam Wainwright pitching meaningful innings for this team this year. It's just incredible. Jennifer, final question. Uh, if Wainwright gets back and he comes out of the bullpen, what's going to be a more fun postseason story? If he shuts down the Mets in the NLDS or the NLCS, or if the Yankees make the playoffs and he actually gets to shut down Carlos Beltran again? 
Oh, they're both great. You know, it's interesting for Adam because his signature moment still and perhaps forever will be that curveball. And he has mentioned recently how much he wants to come back and have a new moment. So um, certainly Mets fans have never forgiven him. They certainly make that know when he goes back to New York. Beltran, who was, you know, did become Adam's teammate, can smile about it a little bit now. But, hey, I love either of those storylines. <laughs> There's really no wrong answer there. And the Cardinals, just like every single year, are incredibly fascinating. Uh, good stuff. Jennifer Langosh, MLB.com, Cardinals beat writer. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes. Yeah, thank you. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Today we're going to talk about the Angels, who had a thrilling comeback win over Houston uh, this afternoon. They're four out in the West, 1.5 games back in the wild card, hanging on. Kind of iffy as to whether they're going to make it or not. But here to tell us all about it, Pedro Mora from the Orange County Register. Pedro, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Pedro, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Garrett Richards. He's uh, obviously been one of the more fascinating guys as we get into StatCast because we've been calling him, quote-unquote, the spin king. Right? He's got four different pitches that rank among the top four uh, in RPM. You know, his four seamers, two seamers, cutter, his slider, and actually his curveball. Let's make that five different pitches. Uh, but he hasn't been quite as successful as last year. His ERA and his fielding independent pitching are both up over a run. Uh, how much do you think that is the, trying to come back from the knee injury that ended the season last year? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I think some of it we, we can say for sure. It's just a matter of how much. I think the biggest the biggest thing that's gone wrong with Richard's season, and which I keep in mind that he's still been pretty good. You know, he's, he's been the Angels' number one starter. So uh, it, it hasn't gone terribly wrong. But what has gone wrong is that he's leaving his fastball up in the zone uh, much more than he did a year ago. Um, so the spin rate is still is still there, but uh, but when when the fastball's up, it, it's a lot easier for major league hitters to hit it for a home run, and that's why he's given up far more homers than he did a year ago. That was maybe the biggest thing he did well last season was on top of the strikeout rate uh, that was that was so much higher than he had posted in the past. He also I think he held hitters five homers over like 160 innings. So uh, I mean it's it's hard not to have success in the major leagues when you're giving up that few long balls. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, his slider up uh, in the years before this year, he'd allowed three home runs on the slider. This year, he's allowed eight home runs on just the slider eight. by itself, wow. which is you know that's a that's a pretty nasty jump. And I don't know if that's something about the sliders and sliding as well, or maybe as you mentioned, the fastball. You know, he's not setting it up as well. Uh, but I think that's obviously a big issue for a team that doesn't necessarily have the pitching strength that it used to. Uh, so oh, I'm sorry. Good. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that that's a great point about the slider. I, I hadn't realized it was eight. Uh, that. He needs to. They need him to be uh, both this season and in the future to be their their ace or or uh, or close to an ace because they don't have, they have nothing close to that uh, in in their system really. I mean, Andrew Heaney is probably the best uh, the best other starting pitcher they have, and while he's had a great rookie season, he's not a number one. Most certainly not. Most scouts I thought you see him as more of a number three possibility of a, of, a, of a two-hole type starting pitcher. So, you know, Jared Weaver is, is nowhere close to the ace he used to be if he ever was really a true ace. And so Richards um, needs to be uh, better, I guess. <laughs> that, sounds, uh, that sounds a little uh, simplistic, but I, I think it's possible. You know, he's, he's still young, and, and the the reason that that he sort of went under over, uh, underlooked, I guess I would say, since he, since he was drafted out of Oklahoma, was that he, he had bad numbers uh, in high school and college, and he was essentially a, a draft pick based on his stuff, based on his, his his measurables. And he hasn't really he's only had success maybe that one season, uh, and he's in he's a different pitcher than maybe, he's more he's kind of like an Arietta, honestly, um, who I know you've talked about on this podcast. Um, and he, in that it, it may take him a little bit longer. I could I could see him. You know, by this point in most pitchers' careers, you're going to think you've you've got their finished product. 
But I can see him changing a little bit. Maybe that's improving in, in, in 2016. I could see that. Well, I, I hope that uh, mention of Arietta, I can take that as meaning you listen to the podcast. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you, listen, you mentioned Jared Weaver, so we have to talk about him. Averaging 85 miles an hour on his four-seamer, which is just not going to do. Uh, this great note from Darren Woolman, who runs BaseballSavant.com. He has 459 pitches under 70 miles an hour. The second-place guy is Ari Dickey at only 162, and Dickey's a knuckleballer. So my question is not why is Jared Weaver having the worst season of his career, because I think that's self-explanatory. My question is, how is he surviving in the big leagues at all at this point? Isn't that amazing, considering that R.A. Dickey is essentially trying to throw the ball right, Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and Weaver is trying to throw it as hard as he can. And I think the hardest pitch he's thrown is 88, maybe 89, that he's touched. We're talking even one time this season. Even, there's been games where he's sat 82, 83. How, how has he survived given all that? I think it's because he's still incredibly hard to pick up. You know, his, his, the same things that made him good at 90 when he was pitching at 90 or 91 miles an hour help him stay solvent, I guess, at this level if he is that. Um, because he's so hard to pick up. His delivery, the deception in it, it's winding, it's, he's lanky, and it's thick. You still don't really know what you're doing until a little bit later than most pitchers. And so maybe the fact that he's throwing 82, maybe that plays like it's – 87 or 88 instead, and that's getting to the territory where there's a few more pitchers, like a like a Mike Bolsinger. Not that you're, it's a given that you're going to have success in the major leagues and your fastball is at 88, <laughs> but uh, it's a little it's a little more precedented than, than 82. Uh, I, I what I'm really curious about is how long can he keep it up? You know, he's under contract for for a while longer. He's not that old, you know, and uh, but at, at this rate, you would have to figure that by 2017, the velocity is going to be so low that it's going to be like he's actually throwing batting practice. Well, you mentioned uh, Andrew Heaney in that rotation, and you're right. He's had a pretty decent season, 16 starts, uh, 357 uh, FIP, which is pretty good. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, they got him by trading Howie Kendrick, and it's not entirely because of Harry Kendrick, but the Angels went from leading the AL in runs last year to scoring three runs or fewer 80 times this year, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Kendrick's departure has obviously been a big part of it. You know, do you think looking back on that trade, it, you know, it made sense to trade the one year of Kendrick for the six years of Heaney, or is that something that maybe for a team that wanted to contend this year, uh, they could undo? They would undo if they could. I still think it was a good trade, but it, it, it would have behooved them to have a better second base replacement available than Johnny Javitella, who is. is Barely replacement level with his offense and is, is a poor defensive second baseman. I think he was, he's the worst in, in most metrics at, at second base this year. Uh, I think the trade would have made a heck of a lot of sense if they had someone even even halfway capable of it. They could have slotted there at second base, um, but they didn't have anything. You know, they brought in three candidates in spring training, hope they would find someone, and uh, they didn't really. You know, Howie Kendrick's numbers this season, if, if you're, you know, it's, it's hard to say that's what he would produce if he was in Anaheim, but uh, they're not. It, Having him would not have turned their season around. They would have added maybe a win or two um, to, the, to what they had on offense. But uh, he's been pretty good, and you have Heaney for five more years at a controllable rate, you know, to, to the next season at a really steep price. So I, I think it makes sense. I definitely still think it makes sense. Well, one of the reasons the Angels haven't been as successful on offense this year, uh, which is actually crazy to think about it, you have Mike Trout and you're struggling to score runs. Like That just shouldn't be possible, is the fact that Albert Pujols uh, kind of struggled. He had a pretty good first half. Declined in the second half. His exit velocity actually didn't drop that much. It's only been a mile difference. Uh, but I think there's a little bit of a narrative that his foot injury is what's really, you know, made it tough for him to hit. But, you know, I'm not certain that's true, right? It's, it seems like he suffered the foot injury at the end of August, but he was already struggling in July. He was already struggling before the foot injury. What have you seen from him pre-injury that kind of made it seem like he's maybe not the same player he was before? Yeah, that, that's a, that's another great question. It's, it's 
with Albert, it's, it's hard to say when it exactly he started dealing with foot injury. You know, I, I, he, it could have been that he's been dealing with it all season and he just never really opened up about it, if that could be the case. Um, but I, I would agree with you, Mike, that it's not like we can simply say, oh, it's because he's hurt. And once he's healthy, you know, he's suddenly going to start ripping the ball again. Uh, he, I think more than anything, I think this is who he is. He's not a uh, – for for all that, that you'll hear about it, when, if you ask managers about how feared he is, I don't know that he remains, you know, an incredibly feared major league hitter anymore. I, I just don't see it in the on-base percentage. I think you would see teams walk him more often. I think you would see – Fewer strikes thrown to him if he was really that uh, that that feared of a hitter, and he's not that anymore. To me, if you're going to talk about an injury and how it's affected an Angels hitter, I think Mike Trout would be uh, would be would be higher on that list. Uh, with his wrist injury he suffered in late July, I, his exit velocity suffered a little bit, not not as much as you might think. Um, and I was checking that today actually, but um, but they did decline a little bit, and now that he's I think turning it around at the play, you can see them start to turn back up, and it would make some sense that, that the wrist would be feeling better now, you know, a month and a half after it happened. And uh, he, he basically dove for a ball and, and drove his wrist into the ground in center field. Um, and, and I think that, that maybe has played a bigger role in the Angels' uh, in the Angels struggles, especially in August when Trout was uh, he had basically the worst month of his major league career. And that, that wrist injury is going to cost him the MVP, isn't it? Because to overcome the narrative of a player being on a team that makes the playoffs, you really have to be considerably better than the other guy. And right now he's not considerably better than Josh Donaldson. They're pretty much neck and neck. He's, he's probably not going to win this award, is he? No, I'm, I'm curious to see how many votes he gets. Uh, yeah, I'm voting for that award this year, so I, I can't really reveal too much about my ballot and what I would be thinking. But I, I am surprised to see that the narrative has turned so much in Donaldson's favor. Because, like you said, I think their war numbers are literally, I think they're both at 8.0 right now. Uh, they're, they're basically having the same season. It's just that Donaldson's team is like, is like seven or eight wins better. Um, but what would be particularly interesting is if they end up matching up in the, uh, in the wild card game, the Blue Jays and Angels, which is a, a remote possibility. What a possibility right now. Yeah, that would be fascinating. And what's funny is if Donaldson wins it this year, that means Trout's one win in his four seasons is going to be in his worst year. And I use yep. enormous <laughs> air quotes over worst because his worst season is still like the 15th best season in the history of baseball or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, uh, actually, I, I love that. I mean, I love that it was that it was he won his first MVP in his worst year. But if he if he is better than he was last year, this year, and he doesn't win it, it's going to it's gonna only add to the the beauty of that narrative yeah sometimes i just don't think we truly understand and respect like the greatness that we're seeing um pedro i want to move on to some articles that you've written both this year and last year uh you wrote last year this is about josh beckett when he was still pitching for the dodgers he you know kind of had this brief career resurgence in the first half of the season and a large part of that was aj ellis when he was injured he basically started acting like a, a baseball analyst more than a catcher and he told him to throw the curveball more uh, and it turned out to be very successful. So I was curious about your process there. Did you notice something in the numbers and then go talk to the players? Or the other way around, did you hear something that the player said and you said, I need to investigate this? I think what that ha- how that happened last year was I uh, I was a little confused at how Beckett was having the success that he was having. And I, uh, I went to AJ Ellis to ask him about it uh, because uh, – because he's sort of the, the and I, I'm sure you've seen this, Mike, in your time around the clubhouse, that he's, he's the guy that you go to with questions because he will he is both will, understanding of a lot of things that happen in the game and willing at times to explain them to, uh, to inquiring uh, reporters who are less informed about the game than him. So uh, he, And he sort of tipped me off, I guess I would say, to it, and then I asked Beckett about it and, and whatnot. And then you go and look, at it, look it up in the numbers. Uh, ideally... You would have uh, you would have something that you, you found a theory that you developed based on what you saw in the numbers, and go to the players about it. But 
at that point, as I recall, it was pretty early in the season still, and I don't think I had drawn any serious conclusions just from, from books, baseball, and, and, and whatnot at that point. So I, I have to credit that one to AJ. Yeah, you're, you're 100% correct about that. I had a long conversation with AJ about pitch framing in the locker room uh, two years ago, and then a lot of the other guys either won't look at you or just give you one-word answers. So I think he's long been a, a reporter's best friend. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about something you wrote this year with Gabe Kapler, recently hired by the Dodgers to run their minor league system. Uh, and it was a pretty interesting look at what they're teaching their minor leaguers. And it's basically, we don't ever look at batting average. And I think that that was something that took a lot of the minor leaguers back. Uh, that's something they've always considered very important. And what you wrote at a, a, the real, quote unquote, real predictors are exit velocities, weighted runs created plus, weighted on base average, you know, the kind of stuff that we uh, as analysts always look at, but players, most of them don't, don't seem to care about. Uh, I'm interested to know, has there been any follow-up on that? Like, have the have players started to buy into it a little more than they did in the months since Gabe Kapler and friends started talking about it? Yeah, uh, I think um, I think that that was my question. You know, after I wrote that article, was okay. How is this going to to develop? How are players going to buy in? And uh, just I just wrote a thing on Scott Schebler, uh, who was kind of the part of the focus of that story, because his batting average was was essentially bad all year in, in with AAA Oklahoma City, and uh, he was down on himself. He was tinkering with this swing, uh, and he was hurting himself. Because he was getting unlucky and it was hurting his batting average, although he was ripping the ball, hitting the ball very hard, um, pretty consistently. And so because of what Kaplan told him, he stopped. He essentially stopped caring about batting average and started caring about how hard he was hitting the ball. So after every game, he would go in and look at his exit velocities after every hit. And he said it got to the point that where by July or August, he, was, uh, he could predict how hard he hit every ball within a couple miles an hour every time. Because, he, you know, he was, he was getting daily calibrations of what – what he did, and because because of the systems, you know, because of the, the systems that are in play across uh, across the Pacific Coast League, he could he could do that. Um, and now he came up to the Dodgers, and he's only played a little bit, but when he has, he's, he's absolutely ripped the ball. He had uh, three homers, all hit really hard, um, and he has a lot of potential as, as a guy who we we don't know maybe what position he'll play, whether he's a regular or a uh, or a bench bat, but he can hit. And uh, you wouldn't necessarily see that just from his, his minor league numbers this season, where he hit like 245 with 310 on base and 13 homers uh, with, with Oklahoma City. Nothing special. But uh, those were fueled by a low Babbitt, by, a, uh, by an unlucky sort of stadium layout in Oklahoma City that's not favorable to left-handed hitters. And uh, he would, you would expect him to produce much better numbers, and I think he will going forward. And that's something that... Uh, that what Kapler taught, Kapler's teachings essentially enabled him to do so, to, to remain confident and not, uh, not tinker himself into a hole, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, we have minor leaguers looking at exit velocity. We are truly look, uh, living in the future. Pedro, one last question for you. Next week is going to be three months since the July 1st resignation of Angels GM Jerry DePoto. Why is this taking so long, and what's your, what's your best bet on who it's going to be? Uh, why is it taking so long? Because I don't think it was a focus of the Angels' for, for the first month or so after his resignation. It was just sort of like staying, staying afloat before the trade deadline uh, with their new interim GM, Bill Stoneman, and working with their assistant GM, Matt Klintak. Um I think their, their focus for that first month was just how can we improve the team while, it's, while it's still, there's still time to improve it. Um, since then, I think they've, they've really turned up the search my uh, my choice, who I think they'll probably hire at this point, is Billy Epler, the assistant general manager for the Yankees, uh, who earns raves across the league. I've heard nothing but good things about him. Um, the question remains whether this is a good job, whether you know a, a highly desired executive is going to want to take it, uh, because there there still exists a question, and we have no 
tangible evidence really um, to prove it, but there exists the question whether this GM that they hire will have a lot of control over roster decisions because of how uh, DePoto resigned amid the uh, the reported fights with, with, with Mike Socia, the manager, and whatnot. So if Epler takes the job, the question becomes, you know, is he going to be making the decisions, really? Or is he going to be sort of... Uh, a secondary uh, decision maker, and that's something that we don't know. Maybe we won't know, and I think that will remain the case with uh, with whoever they hire. Pedro, great stuff. Pedro Mora, Orange County Register. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. This has been the MLB.com Statcast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Thanks so much to my guest, Jennifer Lingash, Cardinals beat writer for MLB.com. Pedro Mora, Orange County Register. Catch you next week.